All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit technipfmc.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn. Welcome from the to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melgard, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for DOE's Oil and Gas Upstream Research. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technip FMC for sponsoring this podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes below. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your kids. Also, I want to remind you about a new podcast we've launched, Oil and Gas Geopolitics with Jordan Driscoll. There's a link in the show notes below. Now, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Connor Prohaska, Chief of Strategic Partners partnerships at Boer Quantum Technology. Hi, Connor. Thanks for joining us today. Elena, good to see you again, and thanks for having me. It's exciting. Yeah, so I'm excited. I, I'm going to read your bio now, and you're very, very <laughs> impressive. I didn't know half this stuff about you, um, and I'm only reading about a third of your resume here, but um, let me go ahead and, and share with everyone what uh, what your background is. Connor Prohaska is the Chief of Strategic Partnerships at Boer Quantum Technology, developing and deploying technologies for the emerging quantum internet. Quantum, that scares me a little bit. Connor was appointed the first chief commercialization officer for the U.S. Department of Energy in 2018. In this role, he also served as director of the Office of Technology Transitions, the DOE's primary technology transitions advisor. Connor created and put into place key mechanisms that moved DOE-sponsored innovations, developed at DOE's 17 national laboratories and DOE's cost-shared research from the lab to market. Connor's efforts gained broad bipartisan support, resulting in Congress making his role and efforts statutorily required in the Energy Act of 2020. Connor began at DOE as Senior Advisor and Chief of Staff of the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, known as ARPA-E, and I hope you'll talk a little bit about that, Connor. Connor served as an Intelligence Officer in the United States Navy, and Connor, thank you for your service. Connor earned his law degree at the George Washington University School of Law and his BA at Texas A&M University, where he also served as student body president. I was involved in student government in college also, and I know it was like a second job almost. It was. Connor, you have a lifetime of service and leadership, and we're so honored to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Elena. This is, like I said, it's exciting and great to see you again. And, and as you mentioned, uh, as we were discussing RPE, where I started at DOE, 
um, is where you and I first met. And I always want to mm-hmm. make sure people understand how cherished you were at the Department <laughs> of Energy is, is uh, uh, when, uh, I, when I was at RPE, we did not have anybody doing any subsurface work, which for the Department of Energy at the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is responsible for moonshots and doing kind of crazy outside the box thinking, uh, I thought it was very important that we do have something uh, in the subsurface uh, 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 arena uh, for for RPE. <clears throat> and the name that kept coming up was your name. And uh, we, we had to go try to get Elena out of the fossil energy office. And, and we kept trying and Finally, the assistant secretary at the time that ran the, the fossil energy office, Steve Winberg, uh, he and I were talking uh, one morning at, up on the seventh floor, which for those that aren't familiar with the Department of Energy, the seventh floor is where the secretary's office and all the big wigs are. And we're up there talking. And uh, he said, I hear you're trying to recruit Elena up to RPE. And I said, well, yeah. He goes, I will kill you if you take it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was about that was about the end of it. And he was he was prepared to take it all the way to the secretary to make sure. That, oh uh, my gosh! That, 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 uh, so I think I've told you that story before, but it's yeah. always good to, to to know that you were appreciated yeah. and cherished uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. across the department. So. Well, I so I so appreciate <laughs> you just sharing that story. What you what you may not remember, may not even have known, was that after you left RPE, um, I was invited to RPE to kind of present everything that I mm-hmm. knew about subsurface and everything. And after that, I got tremendous um, encouragement from RPE and they never actually launched a separate subsurface piece, mm-hmm. I guess, because they thought that we had it covered. Although they did do some, a few key projects, but they never had like a program area on that. And I thought, okay, yeah, I, I that's think, a compliment. I think they, <laughs> it is. I think, I think they did a few in, in like an open type uh, way uh, that that, that were uh, inspired by you. So I always kept up with, with what was going on. And then obviously you and I shared a floor there for, for when I moved over to uh, OTT <laughs> right. and the chief commercialization yeah. uh, role. But, yeah, yeah. but it, it was a great time. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about RPE because I think it's always important for people. You know, I no longer am at the Department of Energy, but I'm still a very big advocate um, for what the department does. Um, I know you are very ingrained with it as, as, as you've been there and, you know, it's, it's like your second home essentially. Um, but you know, particularly at RPE, it was such a cool, cool place to be working and to be doing things. And I would, any subject matter experts that are out there and, and, and people that are in the field and in the industry that feel a calling to go serve, uh, RPE is a great place to go look because unlike most other government jobs, RPE is kind of designed for people, ideally, who are in industry, right, uh, and, and, and practicing um, to come in, uh, spend a couple – it's three to five years, um, although once you get there, you'll try to stay longer. Uh, <laughs> everybody does. Um, and I would have gone to RPE. I would have gone there. I think it's, so. It, it's exciting. Steve had I, let I, me. <laughs> if if the assistant secretary had let you, yeah. It, it, I always tell the story. Um, you know, we had a program manager who came from Monsanto's um, and and uh, uh, was in the agriculture world, and he now works for for Bill Gates. But he said uh, he's got a great quote that when he was leaving Monsanto's, they said, "You know, is your sandbox not big enough?" And uh, his response was. It is big enough, but at RPE, I get the whole beach. Um, and, and, and that's – so RPE, it, it's a great place for researchers and academics. And, and I also always want to highlight it's not just program managers that come for a few years at RPE because RPE's mission 
is to actually go out there and make an impact, not just do research for the sake of research, which is important. I always want to say that basic science is important. So uh, I don't want to get any scientists uh, calling me from the national lab <laughs> saying that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing that down. It's very important and it's critical. But at RPE, we also have tech to market advisors. <clears throat> and what those are ideally are, are people that, that understand in very depth, uh, in depth, the industries that we want to go put these technologies in <coughs> and can work uh, to take those program managers' efforts and move them into the market, understand a business plan, the economics of what's going on. Uh, so it, it's a really exciting group of people to work with. It's a great alumni organization to be at later on. Um, and they're always hiring because of that turnover of, of every three to five years trying to find somebody. So I always put that kind of uh, commercial out there for RPE, even though I'm not there anymore, because I think it's an important place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I really uh, liked about RPE was that it wasn't just the brain candy, which I love, which is why I, I love the podcasting and meeting, you know, and talking with people who are out there. And of course, the quantum still does scare me. We'll have to talk about that. But, um, <laughs> but the fact that it actually takes the research and creates an innovation, generates money in the marketplace. People actually can use it. These are taxpayer dollars. There's really some value to the taxpayer. And then that comes back to the government that can be invested again in new research. I mean, it's just such a wonderful cycle. And RPE sees the whole thing through. It's very exciting, yeah. Well, it is. And, and it exists across the entire department, right? So after leaving RPE, um, I moved uh, to, to, to the Office of Technology Transitions um, and took the role as Chief Commercialization Officer. And, and, and again, something that a lot of people don't fully appreciate about the Department of Energy is, you know, it, the Department of Energy is called the Department of Energy, but in large part, it's the Department of Nuclear Weapons and the Department of Science and Research. Right. Now, a good portion of that science and research uh, is, is obviously in the energy field as we think about it, but it's also physics and it's particle accelerators and high-performance computing and quantum uh, and, and things like that. Um but, but you know, the department at the 17 national labs that, uh, as the secretary used to call them, uh, Secretary Perry used to call them, you know, the crown jewels uh, of, the, of the U.S. federal government. I mean, uh, I always describe them to anybody who hasn't been to a national lab. <clears throat> These are like military bases, but scientists instead of soldiers uh, are there. And, and they are really, really amazing places doing amazing work. Um, and 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 open for business too. You know, that's kind of my old gig too, to, as the chief commercialization officer, I always wanted to make sure people understood the opportunities that existed for partnerships, um, for, for, you know, uh, Goodyear tire has been, has used, uh, Sandia's national, uh, national lab supercomputer, uh, for, for years, um, to make sure that, uh, before they go produce something that it makes sense on a supercomputer. Uh, you know, those kind of opportunities for U.S. businesses, uh, U.S. companies and researchers to come use these facilities, uh, that frankly, the company's not going to build, right? You're not going to go build a particle accelerator, but we have one at the Department of Energy that's open for business and that you can come, you know, do a partnership, uh, what we call an SPP, come in, use it, uh, and really advance your business and the industry. And the whole circle and the reason the U.S. taxpayer, uh, we, we think that's worthwhile is it makes U.S. businesses more competitive uh, on a global market that we always need to be pushing on. So it's Absolutely. exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And the other piece of it is that in the oil and gas sector, 
you, you name a large company, and it has had at least one partnership with one national laboratory to examine one particular question, kind of on the fundamental side of applied research, mm-hmm. that uh, really can and has made you know the difference for that com- company, giving them a competitive advantage. So that's right, work for others. Uh, national laboratories can do work for others. The companies pay for it, and then they get the results, and they, they own those results since they paid for them. But it's another and way it, of unleashing the capabilities of a national lab into the oil and gas sector. And, and, and particularly for oil and gas, you know, obviously oil and gas has one, it's one of the uh, uh, privileged industries, if you will, and the fact that you've got Nettle, one that is, uh, the, you know, the nuclear industry has Idaho National Lab, uh, Nettle, which I know you spent a lot of time uh, hanging out at in West yeah. Virginia, yeah. Um, is, is the National Energy Technology Lab, obviously, and, and that is dedicated to the fossil energy practice. And so um, that's great. But the other labs have have activities uh, going on them across the spectrum. And so, you know, never think that you're cubbyholed into one lab if you're working with one. Uh, and, and I'd always, I always uh, uh, advise people to go uh, talk to headquarters too, because, you know, the national labs, uh, sometimes you end up with one and you just kind of get cubbyholed in there. Um, you want to talk to everybody and, and as many as, as possible and places like your old office can help help those researchers find that right place uh, to go to go do that work. So it's very exciting. Right, right. Although I do have to remind that the um, Department of Energy no longer has an office of oil and natural gas. So it'd be kind of hard to connect there. Um, right. But well, OTT, certainly. <laughs> OTT, OTT can still help you. There so you my go. old office can still help people find right. where they're doing right. fossil research. So. Right. Office of Technology Transitions. Correct. And then uh, NETL, N-E-T-L, which is why we say NETL. National Energy Technology Laboratory is the only government-owned, government-operated uh, national laboratory, which means that the scientists are also federal employees like, uh, you know, like I was. And so the, the notion of the other national laboratories, those are um, uh, contracted, contracted mm-hmm. out. And so, but it's, it's wonderful to have the mix, and it's wonderful to have the, the mix of skill set and areas of expertise and so, yeah, I, I really miss the brain candy. I really miss the brain candy. <laughs> but I also love being in the private sector now. And that's, you know, I feel like I've been blessed to have so much experience in so many ways. Now, this is your story. Right? I'm talking again. I told it, it, you that was going to happen. I, well, I, I knew... <laughs> I knew once I brought up some of your favorite stuff here, so it's important. <laughs> it's it is it is, and uh, I, people can't discount uh, some of the great opportunities that exist out there. But um, you know, the oil and gas industry, I, as as you said, you know, uh, in in my bio, uh, I'm from Texas. I went to Texas A and M. It's it's always funny when people say, well, you know, what is your association with oil and gas? It's like, well, it's kind of bred into Texas A and M. You know, right. if. If you know, if if my buddies weren't uh, uh, from from school, if they didn't end up as petroleum engineers, they were landmen, and if they weren't landmen, that they're in the finance world or they're an energy trader now, and so it's it's uh, it's tough uh, to to get away from it. And, and I also always uh, tell this story, which is uh, when I was taking the Texas bar, I fully credit. Uh, I took oil and gas law at GW Law, which was taught by two professors um, and uh, up here in D.C. And and they said, we're teaching to the Texas bar because most of you are going to take something similar to the Texas bar when it comes to oil and gas law. And I still credit that one class for saving me on the on the Texas bar exam, because at the very end, there was an essay. And the essay question was, what happens to an abandoned well? Uh, in, in the state of Texas, if they can't find an owner, if, you know, and they go through this whole, whole thing about, 
you can't find anybody. There's nobody to find. What happens? And all I could remember was, wait, Railroad Commission. And I'm pretty darn sure nobody else out there <laughs> was going to pick up on that without yeah. taking that class. So uh, so I, I, I credit uh, oil and gas law for uh, making sure I got past the entirety of the Texas bar. So. <laughs> Very good. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Well, everybody needs to know a little bit of something about everything. And of course, you you know a lot more than a little bit about a lot of things. So we're really well, and, great. In, in, in the opportunities, you know, and in, in going back to when we were trying to recruit you to RPE, you know, we had a great um, uh, a woman who's now at, at DARPA uh, doing a similar job uh, of commercialization and, and commercial strategy is Shishelle Manning, uh, who at the time was with Pioneer. Uh, I remember Shishelle. I did not yeah. know that because of yeah, her name. It's so unusual. Well, Shishelle and then uh, also co-hosting that roundtable that we had out in, uh, was it uh, Colorado? It was Fort Collins, I think, right? At Colorado right. State. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, Stephanie Tompkins was there as well, who's now a director of DARPA yes. uh, uh, over there. But, um, you know, it was so fascinating. And that roundtable coming up with so many great ideas and so many, it, you know, you think for an industry, that is 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 so invested and has been in practice for so long. It's not. I don't think anybody uh, would say it's emerging. Um, you know, oil and gas is, has been around for a while. You would think, well, what else is left? You know, oh. how many other ways can we cut this? And how many other ways can we can we drill and explore? Um, and this is just upstream, right? I mean, you talk about midstream and downstream. There's so many uh, different opportunities, but the amount of great ideas. I, you, as, as you know, I mean, that, that we're coming up with, well, we should research that. We should do that. Surprisingly, a lot about data. And that, that'll go, we'll talk about that when we talk a little bit about the quantum. But, you know, that is something that we just kept hearing is uh, if the federal government could do something with the data to help us understand it a little bit better, to help us collect it, you know, and and uh, I, that was an interesting uh thread to pull, I think, in the research that's yet to be done uh, and the opportunities that there still are, uh, whether you're, you know, hopefully people see that, particularly people that are, you know, in in college thinking about what they're going to do. There's still plenty of research opportunities. There's still plenty of uh, exciting things to be discovered and to be uh, perfect. Well, no, never be perfected, but to be improved, if you will. Well, and that's the that's the heart of the challenge that we face here in Upstream, and which is you know why I have so many guests and so many uh, different facets to discuss because um, you know nature is very 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 complex. We don't even have all the math that we need in order mm-hmm. to understand the you know natural systems. And here we take our engineered systems and we try to apply them almost like a bull in a china shop. There are some subtleties. There are some things that we're never really going to understand about the about the geology, about the interactions of rock with rock and fluid with rock and rock and fluid and 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 you know, then especially in hydraulic fracturing and the like and produced water and all the clays and pH and the geochemistry and the geo. So whenever we try to study questions in the subsurface the best we can do is take samples and bring them up to the laboratory well we've already changed the story by taking it out of the uh, environment in which it's it 
it exists and um, we are already and and since we can't deal with any we can't uh, touch anything or, or do anything subsurface we can't see what we're doing then it's all about the, the about the uh, measurements and the data that we collect in, from different points of view and we don't even have enough sensors different kinds of sensors to capture all of the parameters that um, are in the subsurface as I said from all of those different points of view so yes the more data we have the more we can analyze the more we can analyze the more capabilities we need for that analysis the memory the speed all of that and I'm thinking that's where the quantum thing comes into play that's about as much as I know <laughs> no no I mean you're very 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 good uh, great lead in there. You've been practicing this podcast. No, I've just been. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. That's the lead into our show. Well, and it is. You know, if we talk about the data and people say, well, okay, what will quantum uh, technologies in general, what we call quantum information technologies, QIT, you know, what, what are the impacts? And I always think it's good to take a step back um, and, and and realize, okay, there's really three big buckets when we talk about QIT. But um, start again with what is QIT? What is quantum? What does it mean? Yeah. Or are you going to tell me as a process? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I will. Um, you know, again, I'm a lawyer, not a scientist. So I work in quantum. That's okay. Uh, but but yeah, keep it simple. Gotta, exactly. <laughs> you know, so so quantum mechanics is kind of a different way of, of analyzing our universe, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and, and quantum mechanics... Um, kind of is built around the idea of that uh, it, uh, well, I'll use Schrodinger's cat, <laughs> if we will. So if people have heard of Schrodinger's cat, um, the idea is that, that something can be in two states at once and multiple states at the same time. Uh, and so the idea, idea behind Schrodinger's cat and the story goes is that Schrodinger's cat is in a box. And until you open that box, you don't know whether the cat is alive or dead. And in fact, it could be both alive and dead at the same time because nobody in the universe knows exactly what it is. And that's what, what, what kind of superposition and is with qubits, real creative. They're not, they're not bits, they're quantum bits, so we call them qubits, uh, which are kind of the building blocks of quantum technology. Um, they can be in multiple states at the same time. And, and so the idea is with computing – uh, as opposed to a bit that's zero and one and it's binary all the time. If you can be in multiple states, you can get to solutions faster. That's quantum computing. With quantum networking, which is the industry I'm in, that you can have entangled states at a distance, as we were talking earlier, that Einstein called it spooky action at a distance, um, that can provide what we call teleportation uh, and, 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 and send data through. Uh, and have an Alice and a Bob as two nodes, and then Charlie sends that message that, unleashes the box and shows you whether Schrodinger's cat is alive or dead, aka what the data is, what the message is. Um, so that can exist. Um, and then there's also sensing. And the quantum sensing can get down, we believe, uh, and, and again, this is such an emerging uh, field that, that there's new information coming out all the time. There's new research being done all the time. It's developing a lot faster, I think, than most people thought 10 years ago uh, or even five years ago. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, milestones are being hit. Um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Sycamore, which is Google's quantum computer, uh, about two and a half years ago, they were able to solve a problem, uh, and, and run an algorithm, uh, in seconds that it would take hundreds of years 
for Frontier, the, the supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh, to do. Not to call out any particular computers, but um, you know that was the published uh, work that was done. And so when you think about that computing speed, seconds instead of hundreds of years, uh, there's a lot to be done there. There's a lot of big data sets and big problems that you were just discussing that we don't quite know yet that can be run uh, hopefully, uh, through a useful quantum computer and proving the, the number of qubits that exist in those computers um, to solve those problems. <clears throat> uh, with communications, we'll talk about sensing first, and because you, you did mention sensing. Um, you know, the sensing, uh, y- y- we talk about it a lot um, uh, with um, medical technology and, and kind of the uh, possible applications there where we at some point could be able, and I put could in front of all of this because it is an evolving uh, 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 discipline. Um, You know, we could not say, hey, the cancer's here. We could say that's the cell right there that's doing it. Um, And, you know, that's what we need to get to and get down to that level of specificity, which is world changing, right? Um, If if that's the case. Um, and And then thirdly, networking. So, computing, sensing, and then networking. Um, you know, we, we think networking is kind of <clears throat> the the thing that will bring all these together. We don't think that people will have a quantum computer sitting on their desk. We do think there'll be quantum networks that connect these, uh, whether it's quantum computers uh, to end nodes. Uh, you can also use classical data uh, and, and transmit classical data over, over quantum networks. Um, to, for, that, are, that is completely secure, by the way, because of entanglement and the physics involved in that, uh, it's completely secure uh, and nobody can ever dip into those communications. If they do, the message is gone because uh, it breaks the entanglement. So it, it, there's a lot of fascinating applications. And I kind of talked in general terms. So when we talk about <clears throat> the data sets, uh, the sensing, the things that are involved in upstream, um, you know, take your artificial intelligence and put it on steroids, right? And and I think that it's pretty well established that we think there is a role for, say, artificial intelligence oh, in, yeah. in, in, in the upstream oil and gas world. Um, you know, we think the same of, of quantum, right, is that when you have anything that, that fits in, in, and collects and manages and utilizes uh, data sets uh, the way something like upstream oil and gas does, there's an opportunity uh, to improve all of those efficiencies, uh, improve all of the operations, um, uh, assuming we get to a useful quantum computer size. Um, we believe that a quantum network can, can help with that. Um, and then, obviously, sensing uh, would, would kind of be a, a really, really interesting application um, for this industry in particular. Yeah, yeah. So, gosh, you've said so many things, and I'm feeling much, much better because um, quantum mechanics is – so my so – my, I had a college, I had a minor in chemistry. And so mm-hmm. I understand – about the quantum mechanics, and I understand that you don't really know the location of a particle like a, an electron, but you kind of can guess. It's that's why we talk about clouds and shells and things like that mm-hmm. with respect to to the uh, the location of, of electrons. So I understand that, um, and then the notion that um, the speed is what is the speed being able to analyze large data sets quickly, seconds, if you will. I'm excited about that because that brings us to the notion of being able to see ahead of the bit because at the moment that you're drilling, the drill bits have the drill face uh, of the rock and you can get information. Now, that's a, that may not be quantum getting the information to the surface, but the point is, is that the sooner you know what you've got when you've got it, uh, then you can maybe predict you know, a few minutes ahead of it because it'll be the well, same, and, something and, like that. And potentially we could. 
uh, move that information, right? I mean, the evolution will most likely move from just like the, just like computers, right? I mean, it moved from big, huge boxes the size of, of your study um, and even larger to uh, moving things onto a chip, right? And we think that eventually probably these quantum activities will move on to a chip, uh, the communications activities. Um, and then at that point, yeah, maybe you could uh, do something and be, be looking ahead of the bit. Uh, maybe not ahead, but as quick as you, as, as in sync as you possibly can. Um, you know, time synchronization is a big part of this as well. Um, and, and being able to do that at a distance, um, at, at a picosecond level rather than a nanosecond level, um, orders of magnitude faster, you know, so, so the create the, the applications and possibilities, you know, are, are, uh, uh, up to the imagination or, or limited only by imagination. Um, but the technology is also, you know, a, as it progresses, we're going to get more and more understanding. Um, I think anybody who says they definitively know what quantum will or will not do uh, as far as applications and end users, um, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think anybody definitively knows yet, which is why it's so exciting, right? Is If we go back to what we were talking about and why we love being at the department of energy, uh, is, is there's so many possibilities still out there to be un, undis, un, uh, uncovered and discovered, um, uh, that are, that are ready for us. So it, it's an exciting time to be, to be in the, the science and tech industry. Oh right gosh. Now. Yeah. No. And I'm excited because, um, the whole notion of, um, hydraulic fracturing and unconventional reservoirs and not knowing exactly where the uh, fractures are and, you know, just being able to put little drilling bots into what existing um, uh, fractures, natural fractures, or being part of the sand that you inject when you're hydraulic sheet fracturing, and then just letting those little bots continue to kind of chew away at the rock and create more and more channels if they control them, and you'll know where you're placing them as opposed to just hoping that, that they're going there and seeing what you got you know, based on mm-hmm. core or whatever, um, taking pictures down there. I mean, it's just so much potential to give us the insights that we want because so many people um, who aren't oil and gas, um, and we welcome those people to the show as well, um, is the notion that, that the oil and gas is sitting somehow in sort of a pool on, in right. the subsurface. And no, we have to beg the reservoir for every drop of oil and gas that we get and, and come up with creative techniques. And then this information also gives us greater insight for safety and for my environmental protection. I mean, there's just so many things that are all part of the upstream that could be possible with you know more precise technology. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, that's one of the things I always thought was interesting, too, is, is <clears throat> when we're talking about technology in upstream oil and gas, you're, people are always thinking about digging a hole, right, and uh, and boring out. I mean, I was at the, at after, particularly after, you know, we did that roundtable, um, you know, and, and when we were really exploring the new opportunities. I was thinking about truck safety out in West Texas and traffic patterns, right? I mean, um, there's so much more to it than just a rig. Uh, and there's so much more activity going on in places, um, that I, it's, I wouldn't even call it on the periphery, right? I mean, this is part of the operation Yeah, it's a system, um, and part of it's a system that, 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 uh, that there's plenty of places to improve efficiency, plenty of places to improve, uh, with the modern science, uh, science and technology research going on today. So it is, it's very exciting. Right. right. And for me, I see that as energy security and right. 
as part of the contribution that oil and gas can make to an all above all of the above strategy. So, yeah, yeah, that's really really exciting. Wow. So so uh, so Bohr, I'm sorry, I missed the name of your guy. Bohr Quantum Bo- Technology. So right. what do you what do you do? What do they so do? Yeah, we we are we're a, we're a quantum networking company. Networking. Uh, so in the, we're in those three buckets of computing, sensing, or networking. We're the the the, the networking portion, um, and we are commercializing uh, technology. It's a spin out of Caltech, uh, also using Fermilab, which you're familiar with, yeah. um, and uh, we're spin out of Caltech, uh, commercializing um, quantum networking technology into what we call nodes or racks. Um, and uh, our technology uh, has commercial performance metrics. And what we mean by that is fidelity over 90%, the ability to really, uh, we think, uh, be useful. Um, and it's everything from networking, quantum computer uh, uh, processors for, for quantum computer developers, um, secure communications, which I mentioned, uh, that can be uh, quantum or classical. Um, there's also time synchronization, which is kind of fascinating for a number of industries, such as finance, um, to be able to synchronize uh, down from that nanosecond level down to picoseconds um, and to be able to uh, – nothing moves faster than the speed of light still, uh, but, but to be able to synchronize at a distance, uh, uh, two clocks uh, is pretty fascinating um, and, and pretty, uh, we think, can be very useful uh, for a lot of applications in a lot of different industries. So that's that's the <clears throat> the, the main point is, uh, you know, we're hoping to be able to, to supply the nodes and the racks that will enable the quantum internet um, as we move forward. Uh, we were part, uh, when we were at <clears throat> the Department of Energy, when I was at the Department of Energy, uh, we wrote the, the, the national quantum blueprint um, that was published. And it really envisioned this idea that when DARPA, then ARPA, created the internet, it took 30 years, right, before it kind of evolved beyond yeah. just a university activity to something useful and real. Ideally, that this won't take that long. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've got some lessons we've learned uh, of how that developed and how it's how it uh, was adopted. And so the point of the quantum Internet blueprint that uh, we, we were part of uh, creating at the Department of Energy um, was really this idea that, hey, we can accelerate this by using the lessons learned and, and, and laying out a plan, a blueprint uh, of how we think a quantum Internet can be adopted uh, first regionally uh, and then moving forward uh, from from that to a nationwide and, and worldwide quantum network. Wow. Do you, is that blueprint still something that, I mean, was, is it available it online? Is. It's published. It's yes, published. It, it, yeah, it's published. Oh. DOE Quantum Blueprint. Uh, you can look it up uh, if you just Google it, as, as everybody does. Or mm-hmm. I guess you can use uh, AI now uh, to find <laughs> That's right. Use, 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 uh, use one of the networks yeah, uh, yeah. or one of the systems. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's public out and it's out there. And, um, it, and so it really kind of lays out a, a great way of uh, potentially creating it. And then some of that's been reflected not just through the National Quantum Initiative uh, that was created in 2018, but also uh, there's uh, quantum networking uh, is included in the Chips and Science Act uh, and and the importance of that and probably uh, some other areas. Are, there's a lot, of, a lot of work being done at a federal level, but there's also a lot of work being done in private industry right now. It's, it's actually one of the coolest success stories, I think, is the fact that there are 
burgeoning companies, new companies. Uh, it's, it's, it's the big people that you would think the big technology firms are, are interested in quantum and quantum computing. But there's also startups. We're a startup in the quantum networking, but in the quantum computer side, uh, there's a handful of startups. Some are publicly traded now even uh, that, uh, that are creating uh, this at the forefront of it. And that's, that's awesome to think that there's new companies that most people have never even heard of doing such big things. And that's exciting. And, yeah. and, and the classic uh, big companies as well are, are doing stuff that's really keeping uh, us at the forefront of, of quantum industry uh, across the, the planet. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, quantum, okay, I'm trying to like sort it out. Like, where does it come into play? Like, I, I'm not going to balance my household budget using quantum, right? So, what no. are the, what's, the, where is, how do these things kind of fit together? Yeah, I, um, I think, I think, I think, think of, as I mentioned earlier, when you talk about any industry that handles a lot of data. Right. And, and um, when you get a, a large, huge amounts of data um, and, uh, you know, and again, um, not definitively saying anything because you can't. I, I, again, I can't. I think anybody who does say they definitively know what it's going to be used for and how it's going to be used. I think we've got some good ideas and there's some very smart people who have published. This is what we think quantum can be used for uh, everything from security uh, to, uh, uh, you know, optimization of any large system, um, to that synchronization I spoke of, uh, that, that, I mean, think of grid optimization, think of, um, <clears throat> of, of medical, I mean, medicine is, is very data driven. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we can't even get to at this point, as far as information and data that, that we think, there could be an opportunity there, not just in the sensing, but in the computing as well. Um, and frankly, there, there's, as we saw with uh, a, a lot of, and I, I, DARPA just started a project actually, US2QC. Uh, and the point is, let's do something with a quantum computer, right? Let's do something you know that's useful and applicable. Um, and I think they'll explore that. And I think that's where we're going to start getting some answers of what we really want to do. I think the thing that people talk about right now so much of is security. Um, this idea that if a quantum computer gets to a certain level and is so powerful um, and can do uh, computations at a level that, that is beyond anything a classic high-speed computer can do, um, what does that mean for our our security, for lack of, I mean, passwords and, and, and cryptography, oh, yeah. it's a little scary. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's really one of the main motivations. And there are some good uh, technologies that, that are being developed to work on that. Um, so, you, 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 as I said, I don't know if you can definitively say, and I think that's what's exciting about it. So um, you won't have a quantum computer sitting on your desktop, but uh, but 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 you may be connected to one through work for some very uh, – significant and high speed problems. Oh yeah. So so something that has a lot of data, a lot of data, plus a lot of moving parts that have to kind of work together and interface properly. That's a real big question. So those right. are the kinds of questions that the quantum can could address quickly, which is a key word also, is that the speed, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Boy, my brain is way out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. You know, I love that part. <laughs> you know, I think I think uh, anything that that uh, got to a point where it frustrated Einstein. Um, uh, for my poor little feeble mind, I'm okay being a little confused about it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, fair. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <gasps> In comparison, yeah, yeah. 
Oh um, gosh, this has been wonderful. So, and we're and we're almost at time. Connor, do, do you have anything else you want to share? I mean, you've shared quite a bit. I mean, this is really exciting. But well, is there anything it's, it's, else? It's, it's exciting. I, I want to continue to motivate people in the industry um, to your point about energy security. Um, you know, I tell the story that um, when <clears throat> when I was in the Navy, and this happened, you know, uh, as you know, um, while we were at the Department of Energy, uh, you know, the Straits of Hormuz, uh, had an issue and, uh, and there was, I mean, there was ships being fired on. And, uh, I remember thinking had it been a decade earlier when I was in the Navy, uh, people would have been packing their bags and we would have been moving, uh, things <clears throat> and assets, uh, to make sure that was fixed. And we didn't have to. And, and this, uh, uh, when it happened, we didn't have to, because we had energy security domestically. Um, and, and that's real. I mean, I, I can't think of a more potent example uh, than that one that we didn't have to send people into harm's way uh, over a skirmish because uh, we were able to take care of ourselves and have uh, energy security uh, through our ener- domestic energy production. And I, I hope that that, that uh, can continue. Um, I know there's headwinds right now, uh, and uh, but but um, I think it's it's one of the most important things for us, you know, to be able to be secure about that. And then we can argue about everything else. Yeah. That's <laughs> when, fair. When, when the heat goes off, not many people are going to care about a lot of other issues. And so uh, so I, I think you take care of uh, the first step, and then that allows uh, a society to move forward more than it does when they're worried about basic needs. Um, and so um, that, that's always one of my biggest pitches for why you want uh, as much domestic energy security at home to take care of, uh, of your country first, and then we can we can take care of other problems. Absolutely, uh, when, when that's not a necessity. Absolutely, and of course we have the the best environmental you know regulations and laws and and sensitivity. Well, you'd rather do it here than rather somewhere do it else. Here. Absolutely, <laughs> right? here Absolutely. you can, uh, and that goes with you know uh, everything with with critical minerals all, uh, all the way to oil and gas. You know, uh, if people don't think that we're going to do it safer healthier and more environmentally uh then i don't think they're paying attention to what's happening in the rest of the world right now that's right that's right oh con i could talk with you forever but we are at time so um, i want to uh thank you for spending time with us connor prohaska connor prohaska chief of strategic partnerships at boer quantum technology i want to thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing about all your contributions to oil and gas and to science and to energy technologies. <laughs> thank you, Connor. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm very excited to uh, have been able to catch up with you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you around soon. Oh, absolutely. You're in my shirt list here. You're here and <laughs> uh, easy to, to get to. So um, so thank you again, Connor. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about in future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.